thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 The Naked Scientist Hello Chris Hey morning, morning Hey look, I'm going to tell you about a really cool thing that I've got going because I, I know you're going to want to do this and, uh, and even if you don't, I'm going to make you, okay So it's a slightly long story but I was contacted the other day by someone who's a press officer for Brunel University in the UK and he said one of our members of staff and an, an ex-member of the university have obtained a helium balloon which they're going to send up to space and rather than just strap a GoPro onto it and do sort of mundane, you know, taking pictures, which is nice, but it's been done many times. Is there something else scientifically we could do? So I had to think about this and I said, yeah, I reckon there is. Let's test the claim that in space, no one can hear you scream. So what we've done is we've built an apparatus where we've mechanically decoupled a speaker and a microphone from each other in a special apparatus so that if you put a microphone and a speaker in a box, normally the vibrations from one would just go straight through the box and into the other. So by mechanically suspending them, that can't happen. And the only route between the two is through the air in the box, which is going to be ambient air. And we've written some computer software so we can send a computer up with all this lot. And we're going to set it to start playing and recording screams and logging the altitudes on the way up until it gets to about 120,000 feet, then the balloon's going to pop, uh, we'll recover the whole lot down to Earth, and we can hear what we sound like screaming in space. So, number one thing is if anyone would like to hear themselves scream on the way up to space... You can send your sound files in now and we will air them and the best screams will make it also onto the balloon going spaceward. So you email those to chris at thenakedscientist.com. I've had some great ones in so far. So if you can make them funny, I just had a lady disciplining her children to tidy up their room. Uh, so that's a fantastic one. So if anyone would like to send me some in, send the sound files, chris at nakedscientist.com. Just record it on your smartphone, on a tablet, your computer. If you're lucky enough to have a studio, Eusebius, then you can send, send me the sound file, chris at thenakedscientist.com or chris at nakedscientist.com. Both will work. But I think we should make you do one now, Eusebius, so that uh, we can actually record it in quality here and everyone can hear what the gold standard of, of what should be screamed in space should be. Go on, off you go. I'm not going to let you okay, off the hook. So You've got to do it. Go on. I have a dream! Very good. It even echoed, which is, uh, that's quite impressive. Thank, you, thank you for that. I'm very impressed with myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very chuffed. <laughs> Can't believe it. I always wanted to be a science experiment. There you go. <laughs> well, it's going Chris up. Balloon goes up next f- weekend. So uh, we will report oh, wow, back uh, on Friday on how we're getting on. And then the week after, we'll actually have the recordings, hopefully, if, as long as it hasn't blown out to sea and we lose it in the ocean, uh, which hopefully <laughs> won't happen. But I'll, I'll let you know how I get on. Absolutely stunning. Marlene, good morning. What is your question? Good morning. Good morning. So my question is just about sneezing. So there was a question logic about sneezing, and I just also have a question around that. So why do some people sneeze very loud and some people sneeze very softly? Is there like a, um, a scientific reason for that? Because I'm a loud sneezer, and my husband always says to me, why do you sneeze so loud? But I feel I can't help it. So I just want to <laughs> And what about him? Is he one of the soft ones? Yes, he's soft. So I'm like, I don't know how that works. <laughs> how soft is he? Sneeze 
I don't know if I can do it, but it's like, no, not like that. <laughs> but I'm just like, you know, I, I'm obviously allowed to sneeze. Lovely question. Chris? First of all, what's a sneeze? Well, a sneeze is when you close your vocal cords off, you build up pressure in your chest, and then you release all of that built-up pressure explosively down your nose and through your mouth. The aim is to dislodge some kind of obstruction. So anything that could be irritating, obstructing, or blocking your airways can trigger a sneeze. The sound that comes out is because sound is a pressure difference. And so when you release a high-pressure air from inside you to the outside world. That's air going from a high-pressure to a low-pressure, and it can create vibrations in exactly the same way your voice does. You can actually adjust that pressure change, though, and you can direct it. So some people sneeze with their mouth open, some people sneeze just down their nose with their uh, mouth closed. And just as an aside, no evidence that if you sneeze with your eyes open, you're going to pop your eyeballs out. I've done the experiment on myself... I wanted to. I couldn't believe it was true. I experimented a few years ago. I can still see it's fine. Um, I think this might be a legacy of of people getting boxing injuries or something. And the idea don't don't blow your nose if you get if you get um, a fracture around your eye or something. I think that's where it comes from. But but basically, it's to do with how you then control and deflect the pressure change as you sneeze. And some people add additional sounds, and uh, that's why you make more noise. It is possible to attenuate the sound you make from a sneeze. And so I think to a certain extent it comes down to whether you're an extrovert as well. So if you feel like you're making a big, a big sound, people tend to make a big sound. 702, The Naked Scientist. Schultz, good morning. Good morning. Woof, what is he asking there in the background? Yeah, yeah, you see this, how is it? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. Yeah, you know how many weeks I've been trying to get, get hold of you. I'm so sorry. I blame the naked scientist for being popular. What is your question, yeah. Schultz? Uh, the, the question I have, man, something that has fascinated me and puzzled me for a long time, is the concept of measurement. Yes. Be it length, be it weight, be it volume. Mm-hmm. How did, uh, what measure was used to determine those measurements, if, if you get what I'm saying? Who decided that a centimeter should be so long. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. What well, measure was used to, to get to that measurement? And a, a kilogram, for example, what measurement was used to get to a kilogram and a litre the same way? Okay, questions nice and clear. Chris? Well, in the early days, it was a little bit ad hoc, actually. And in the very early days, people used bits of their own body as a length scale. That's where the idea of a foot comes from. And there were things like cubits, which was if you actually look at your hand with your thumb outstretched, you know, the length of a, of a man's hand. The thing is, it's all, a, it's all a bit difficult to reproduce. And when you start to, to make things that require more precision, it's not really satisfactory. So those sorts of early measures, like a yard, which was apparently a stride, a foot, the length of a person's foot, the cubit, the hand span, etc. Those all went and people said, let's have a standard measurement. And so initially things like yards were standardised by having a piece of wood that then people compared them to. And the the kilo is a really neat example, actually, because in about 1889, they decided to have a standardised kilo all over the world by actually issuing people with chunks of metal that weighed a kilo. Now, Le Grand K, which was the master kilo against all all of which these were compared, 
was in Paris, hence the Le Grand K, and this has sat there in Paris ever since. It's a piece of platinum iridium, very, very valuable piece of metal that weighs a kilo and against which all these clones, and there are a number of them which were distributed all over the world as the standard measure for a kilo, that that, that was used. In recent years, though, people have said, well, this is not very satisfactory because actually every time you take your kilo out of the cupboard and clean it, you're knocking off some atoms, so you're causing it to lose some mass. And if it picks up some pollution from the air in the box, it's going to gain some mass because there's going to be some atoms sticking to it. So it's not very satisfactory. So we need a better way of defining a kilo. And just in the last month or two, we've actually now had ratified by the organisation that decides on how we're going to weigh and measure things, that we're actually going to redefine the kilogram and this hunk of metal that we've all been using for over 100 years, that's gone and we're now redefining the kilo in terms of a fundamental universal constant. There's something called the Planck constant and through various complex mathematics you can relate that value of the Planck constant to the amount of force you need from an electromagnet to support a mass of one kilogram. And so we're now redefining the kilo in terms of that particular amount of electric force. And as a result, we now have a a definition which is not going to vary of the kilo. And so that's a really neat example of of how we're standardising these sorts of measures. Because it would have been a bit embarrassing, right, if aliens turned up from space Mm. and and they said, so how do you you measure things on Earth? How do you define how big something is? And we produce a hunk of metal and say, oh, that's what we call a kilo. We'd be a laughing stock of the universe. So as a result, we've now got these much more standardised, much more organised ways of, of defining things. Gary, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? We're good. Thanks, Gary. What question have you got for us? Um, I'd like to know how come I can sing along with a song and the artist and actually go ahead in terms of the words, but if you ask me to recite the words of the song, I couldn't do it. <laughs> you and me both. Can you do us an example, Gary? Can, can, you, can you sing us something? Can you, can you sing us something? No, I can't. <laughs> come on, Gary. I know you're out there somewhere. <laughs> Uh, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but if Moody Blues... <laughs> He's not going to take the bait, is he? The, the reason for this, Gary, is because when you are listening to the tune, the tune acts as an aid memoir and helps you, because of the metre and the pattern of the music fitting the words, it helps you to recall the words. But when you don't have that aid memoir, you can't do it. Now, before we evolved and developed the ability to write things down and read them back again, people think that one of these early forms of of singing poetry arose and we started to do that because of a really good way. It's a really good way to remember things. In other words, if you can't write and you can't read, you can nonetheless learn a song or learn a poem. And because there are rules about how the language should flow, the metre and the pattern and so on, it enables you to make sure you get the message right. So having poetry and having song was one way to constrain what words would have fitted in a sentence and therefore what people actually recorded and documented. And we think that's how how they kept the message faithful when we didn't have writing. And it's because those things work together, the pattern of the singing, the pattern of the music, the metre, and the words that are already in your memory, and you bring the two together and one helps you to remember the other. Another Gary. How's it, Gary? Hi there. Welcome to the show, Gary. What's your question? Yeah, my, my question is, uh, I don't know if you've seen this TV series, Chernobyl. It's really, on, really yeah, it's on my list on Netflix. Have you seen it? Absolutely awesome. Absolutely brilliant. And what question so flows question, from it for you? Yeah, my, my question uh, is, what made the reactor explode? 
explode when they tried to shut it down? Uh, and, and was it human error or uh, are those sort of faults generally repaired globally? Because it seems to just to be a, a heat generation issue and an explosion caused by overheating. And, and how do they shut down nuclear plants these days to try and do services or determine safety uh, parameters? Hello, Gary. The answer is obviously it's slightly shrouded in mystery because what we think we know and what are facts with things like this and, you know, Soviet era governments, a little bit tricky to know exactly. But what we understand about this is that that reactor was a pressurised water reactor. In other words, it's using water as a moderator and coolant. And in a nuclear reactor, you have fuel rods and those fuel rods produce neutrons and those neutrons are slowed down by the moderator the water and then directed into other rods where they trigger an onward chain reaction and the more of those neutrons that are allowed to do that the faster the reaction goes the fewer the slower the reaction goes and you can control how fast the reaction goes by putting control elements in the way so as well as the moderator the water that slows down the neutrons to make them more likely to engage with the other uh, fuel elements you also can put down things which absorb neutrons or deflect them and slow them down and in that way you can reduce or accelerate the rate of the reaction now i think that with the chernobyl reactor what they were doing were some experiments to look at uh, actually the performance of the reactor which involved locking out the reactor elements so that the reaction was allowed to accelerate and then i think for some reason they couldn't get the rods to re-engage, as in the control rods, and the reaction began to run out of control. And it was impossible for them then to stop the reactor because the thing that stops the reaction couldn't be put in the way of the thing that was causing the reaction. This causes the reactor to heat up, and it then becomes so hot that the fuel, rather than being in nice organised rods, melts because there's a melting temperature for the uranium fuel. And once it melts, all of the uranium then drops in a giant blob in the bottom of the reactor. And now there's nothing in the way of the neutrons coming from one decaying nucleus and hitting another one. So it goes into a a feedback meltdown loop and you end up with this molten material which is so hot it even melts through the bottom of the reactor, through the concrete under the reactor and keeps going because there's now nothing in the way of the nuclear reaction Um, and that's called a meltdown and we think that that's basically what happened. It was some kind of experiment that then went wrong and they couldn't reverse the thing that they had put in train. Got a voice note with a question in it. Let's have a listen to this one. Morning, Nicky Sandy. This is Tammy from Arbaton. I just want to know what makes someone to lose power or to lose balance when he or she is drunk, and what makes us like to, when I'm drunk, I forget the events that happened. Like yesterday, the time I was drinking, like sort of. Yeah, I just want to know what is the connection between the alcohol and the mindset there. Thanks. <laughs> Why well, is alcohol bad for us? Alcohol is bad for us if used in other than moderation for many, many reasons. And I'm sure that's something you would never do, Eusebius. But um, as in, I mean, as in you wouldn't go anything other than beyond moderation, would you? You wouldn't do that. But, um, I wouldn't remember if I... No. <laughs> okay. Well, the reason that alcohol has the effect that it does is that it potentiates, in other words, increases the activity of a nerve transmitter system in the brain called GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. GABA is the brain's inhibitory nerve transmitter. If you take alcohol, you increase the signalling 
in those nerve pathways. And if you increase the signalling in an inhibitory pathway, this is why alcohol is a CNS, a central nervous system depressant. It reduces brain activity. So therefore, you're less likely to remember things because the memory circuits, if they're being switched off or inhibited or having their activity turned down, are less likely to form good quality imprints of memories. You're less likely to behave yourself because the circuits which are normally reining in and controlling your behaviour, they're extremely neurologically hungry processes. And if you inhibit those, then your brainstem kind of basal animal, animal instinct level of activity tends to come through. And that's why people tend to behave more brashly and loudly when they get drunk. And then there's the question of, well, why does the room spin? Why do we feel giddy and dizzy? Um, part of this is because our reactions are slowed down. When you have a depression of the central nervous system because it's a CNS depressant, the various reflexes and things are going to happen less optimally and less quickly. So writing reflexes and, and muscle responses that keep you balanced will happen in a, in a less organised way. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that our balance occurs because we have inside our inner ear a structure called the vestibular system and these are three tiny canals they're about the size of a small coin each and they're organized each at 90 degrees to each other in the three axes and when they are uh, when they're working normally they contain a fluid which is very similar to the cerebrospinal fluid around the brain and that fluid when you move your head is left behind momentarily and that pushes on some hairs which project into the fluid and sends a signal to your brain what direction you must be moving in the brain then compensates by moving your eyes in the opposite direction and rebalances your muscles. If you dissolve alcohol in that fluid, which is what happens when you drink a lot, then the fluid density changes, and that means it pushes a different amount on the hairs that would make those signals go between the semicircular canals, your vestibular system, and your brain. And as a result, the brain can get confused about how big those signals are and therefore what the correct writing manoeuvres are to keep you balanced. So I think when we get drunk, it's a range of different effects. These include the brain being a bit disinhibited and depressed, various writing mechanisms not working as optimally because they're being switched off as well, and a change in density of the fluid in the semicircular canals in your vestibular system. Malou, good morning. How are you, Eusebius? I'm good, thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask the naked scientists there, according to the technology that they made, uh, which now reproduces only male mosquitoes, how will the lack of female mosquitoes in the ecosystem affect nature generally? Yes, I asked Tom Reed, who's the chief scientific officer of Intrexon, the company that have done this, that very question. So well done. It's an excellent question, he told me. And... The answer to this is that at the moment they're going for invasive species. He cited Aedes aegypti mosquitoes as their current target. These are an invasive species taken originally from Egypt, for example, hence the name, to southern America. And in Brazil, they're now a major problem because they are a vector for yellow fever, they're a vector for Zika virus, they can also be a vector for West Nile virus. They were taken there by humans, so they are not a natural inhabitant of that geography, and their argument is therefore that if we use a technique and like their technology to get rid of them, all we're doing is cleaning up one of our own messes. We're not actually removing something from the environment that would naturally be there. There's no natural enemy of these mosquitoes. They shouldn't be there in the first place. I then put it to him, well, if we do this with Anopheles mosquitoes that do spread malaria, is that not a problem? Because they are supposed to be there. They are a natural part of the ecosystem. And he said, well, there is that consideration. But it is possible if you are 
for want of a better phrase, surgical with your intervention. You deploy your mosquitoes into a certain geography. You can predict mathematically how many males, if you release that many males that have been modified, how quickly the population in that geography will crash and how quickly the effect will wear off. And you could use this as a sort of surgical intervention to just treat high-risk geographies for a period of time rather than trying to completely eradicate the mosquito from that uh, area or the world as a whole. Helen, good morning. Hi, good morning. Let's squeeze in your question quickly. Yes, something has bothered me. How come some people uh, are not born but are happy all the time most of the time they make the best of life and then you've got other people that do the total opposite. <laughs> Which are you? Normal or... Oh, no, don't ask me that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. People like Aki, my good friend and colleague. Aki is always happy. Yeah, I'm, I'm a glass half full person because the world breaks down into, into glass half full and glass half empty people. Some people are very good at looking on the bright side. Some people are very good at looking not on the bright side. And I think it's actually a natural human trait that actually we do, we have evolved to see the best and remember the best and have pleasant recollections of, of the past and look and look positively to the future. Because if we didn't, there's a danger this could become a self-defeating thing where if if we become too introspective and worry too much and ruminate it about what could have been or what's gone wrong then it, it harms your ability to triumph and flourish in future so i think it's part of our evolutionary programming that we have the tendency to be glass half full type people but not everyone has inherited that and it might be that, that that's part of society's rich tapestry that some people just aren't very aren't very good at being optimists but uh, luckily i, I am oh, i'm not one of them i'm a, i'm very much an optimist on it, are you yeah. Part of the tapestry of nature that some people are sour. I see what you did there, being half full person. <laughs> <laughs> you were listening too carefully. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us and explaining it so lucidly as always. We'll do it again next week. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.